Boker Tov, good morning. Welcome everyone to an Aliyah day on this fine, beautiful Yom Sheni. This is the second Aliyah, Baruch Hashem, the second Aliyah of Parasha Shemot. It's going to be a great and wonderful day today, God willing. Hope you're having a great day already. And uh, Baruch Hashem. So, we have the book of Shemot. We are in the second reading, the second Aliyah. We would be, of course, in chapter 1 and in verse Chai, verse 18. And uh, looking here, if you had the art scroll Chumash, we are going to be on page 295. We were leaving off where Pharaoh has decided to do some infanticide and get rid of uh, the Jewish uh, children. And the reason why, as we said yesterday, that he's doing this is because uh, his, his astrologers have said there's going to be a Savior born. There's going to be a Savior born. And so uh, Pharaoh decides, you know, in order to get rid of the Savior, I need to uh, destroy all the Jewish babies. And so there's nothing new under the sun. Obviously, we see that this is an allusion to... The, uh, the Savior of the world, Mashiach Yeshua, who would be born. And uh, the Pharaoh at the time, uh, King Herod, would make a similar decree. It's obvious. It's obvious. This is what, when, when Moshe said, there's going to be a Redeemer like me, uh, he meant like me in every respect. So we read in verse 18, the king of, of Mitzrayim. Remember the Mitzrayim uh, means constriction, right? It's... Uh, a tightness, it's a, it's a, it's a crushingness, and also remember as we look at these stories that uh, not only does the enemy want to destroy us physically, but really, it's not the physical death that's the problem; it's the spiritual death. This is what is to be understood when it says, "Not to fear the one who can destroy the body physically, but the one who can destroy the body spiritually." That's the more important problem. So anyway, <clears throat> the king of Mitzrayim summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing that you have caused the boys to live? So the midwives are, uh, are saying that the, Egypt, the uh, Israelite women are so skilled at giving a child, childbirth that basically before they can even get there, they have the children already. They don't even need their help. They're so uh, amazing. And so, hey, it's really not our fault. So the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are unlike the Egyptian women, for they are experts, before the midwife comes to them, they have given birth. God benefited the midwives, and people increased and became very strong. And it was because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. Now, to the comment to this, God benefited. It's a, Or Chaim brings down an explanation that when God sees a person uh, desires to serve him, um, and he's willing to do that at great personal sacrifice, that Hashem enables him to succeed, thus enabling him to perform even more good deeds. So, you know, this is a really uh, good lesson, that if our service to God does not involve any real sacrifice, any real appreciable sacrifice, then it doesn't have as much worth, per, per se. Uh, so... It, but if our service to Hashem involves sacrifice, 
great personal sacrifice. And Hashem aids us and helps us. It's really a test. You know, life is a test. Rebetzin loves that book by Rebetzin uh, Ungers, that life is a test. And so we say, well, the Torah life, it requires a lot of sacrifice. It, it requires a lot of, uh, um, you know, things we're not able to do. And and our schedule is different than everybody else's schedule. And we pass a, a hundred restaurants on the way to the one restaurant we can eat at. Or maybe there's no restaurants you can eat at. Maybe you live in an area Maybe you're watching from somewhere across the fruited plain, and where you live, there are no restaurants. And so, you know, you eat your meals at home. And so uh, that comes at great personal sacrifice and Baruch Hashem. Or maybe, maybe you go out to a, uh, a business luncheon. Maybe you're, you're, you're having to go meet a client or something and say, hey, let's go eat at a steak restaurant. And so you, your client orders a steak. You're there for a business meeting. You can't miss the meeting. And so you order salad. And so, you know, I mean, that's that's all part of sacrifice. Why are you doing that? You're doing that because of your service to God. But Or Haim is bringing down that when we do those kinds of things, Hashem enables us and then causes us to do even greater things. Hence, for trying to make the nation grow, the midwives were benefited with extraordinary success so that they could increase their good deeds and thereby... Uh, earn even greater rewards. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein uh, said that God benefited the midwives. How did he do it? By letting the nation increase and become strong. So great was the midwives' love for their people that their greatest reward was the success of the nation. The secondary reward, the one that is mentioned later, became, uh, excuse me, was because it was less important than the midwives that God made them houses. So, just another good insight from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein that that uh, the greatest reward for the midwives is that the Israelites continued to thrive. Now, why was that good for them? Because the midwives were not Egyptian. So it says here, um, I'll be reading today um, quite, a, quite a few things from the uh, Kehol Tumash. The Kehol Tumash and its... Um, Discussion of the Torah portion actually uh, gives uh, kind of an expanded vision uh, version, rather. It's like the uh, Jewish uh, Amplified Bible, if you will. So it says here, because the midwives feared God, he granted them dynasties. It uses the word dynasty instead of houses because the sages understood that it wasn't literal houses necessarily. Well, it was and it wasn't. That there were on a, on a Peshat level, on a base level, there were houses, but on a on a uh, drash or remez level, there was actually a dynasty that Hashem blessed them with. So it says Miriam became the the uh, progenitor of the royal dynasty. Who these? So who, who are the midwives? First of all, who are the midwives? The midwives are Yakovet uh, and Miriam. Yakovet is the mother of Moshe, and of course Miriam. Uh, is the the sister of Mo, of Moses? So you have uh, Yehovah and Miriam have a mother daughter business. They are uh, you know uh, we're all about Jewish babies. They had a birthing center located in uh, Uptown Goshen, right next to the uh, Kosher uh, Restaurant Square, next door to the uh, to the uh, Judaica store, and they had the business. They were running the business, so. Um, they were using their uh, Egyptian names in the story, but their behind-the-scenes names 
was Yehoved and Miriam. So it says Miriam became, the what are the dynasties? So these, these are the dynasties. Miriam became part of the royal dynasty. King David is described as the descendant of Ephrath, who was identified as Miriam. Yehoved became the, uh, the progenitor of the priestly dynasty through her son Aaron, and some of the Levitical dynasties through her son Moshe. So here we have, interestingly enough, we're going to see this over and over again, where we see the, the uh, crown, we see the, the kingship and the priesthood come together. So we have here Miriam, who is going to be uh, one of the line, if you will, of the, the, the royal line. And Yaakovid becomes the, the one through whom the Levites come or the, uh, the progenitor of the, the priesthood because of Aaron. And so it says, in addition, because the midwives feared God and did not fulfill Pharaoh's charge, Pharaoh had to plant Egyptians among the Jews so that they could hear when an Egyptian woman gave birth and report this to him. So he did, therefore, build houses amongst the Jewish settlements of Goshen. So on the, on the uh, literal level, um, that is uh, what happened. But it says here, um, thus the Egyptians were able to discover the newborn boys and kill them. Seeing this, Amram said, why should we pro uh, procreate for nothing? So Amram, who is the husband of Yehovah, he's already had uh, Miriam, and then he had Aaron with Yehovah, and now he realizes that they have another baby, the baby boy is going to be killed. So he says, why should we do this? This is... Uh, this is for nothing, and, and as men go, men are very uh, very often very pragmatic, very illogical, and so therefore he's looking at the situation and saying, hey, it doesn't make any sense. Besides, we already have a girl, we already have a boy, um, and uh, you know we have another child, we just have to buy more school supplies, so this is better for us anyway. So he says, he therefore divorced his wife, Yehovah, and the rest of the Jews followed their example. So obviously, Amron was somebody who was... Uh, who was someone that they looked up to because whatever he did, they did. So it says, but their young, precocious daughter Miriam argued that God's commandment to procreate must be followed regardless of what may or may not happen afterwards. And that while Pharaoh's decree affected only the boys, Amran had in effect decreed against the girls as well. So, you know, God, I mean, Pharaoh rather said, listen, if you have a boy, I'm going to kill him. So Amram thought, well, we won't have any more children because if we have a boy, he'll die. But Miriam, who Miriam, by the way, is a prophetess. Miriam is one of the great prophetesses of the Bible. And uh, she's very, just a very holy woman, a very uh, powerful uh, character in the entire Bible. Later, we'll learn in the book of Shemot that... Um, uh, the, the, the well, the well that, that fed everybody, the water in the wilderness, uh, flowed on the, on the merit of Miriam. Uh, so it was referred to as Miriam's well. And of course we learned that that well, which was the, the rock that followed us around the wilderness, that well was supernatural. It was, it was literally a rock that followed us around, you know, the wilderness, like the rock of my salvation, uh, the stone the builders rejected. Uh, and so that rock, we learn later, is actually Mashiach. So therefore, it is by no coincidence that Hashem should make it so that the mother, the earthly mother of Mashiach, should also be called Miriam. 
and that her son should be known as uh, the Holy Well. And so uh, Miriam prophesied, said, look, you know, you, Pharaoh said, kill the boys, but you're also killing the girls. This is also a life lesson to us. We live in an age, it's being taught to our children, trust me, I know, that, you know, you should only have 2.1 children, because anything more than that, then you're, uh, you're creating a problem for yourself, you're not going to be able to afford them, uh, the, the world can't support them, all this other nonsense, and really what that is, is it's teaching our children uh, a lack of faith, a lack of faith. Uh, incidentally, just as an aside, I, I was in the store the other day, and I overheard a mother talking to their little young, really, really young child, um, I don't even, maybe, maybe not even kindergarten age, and so I'm kind of preaching to the proverbial choir on this, but maybe you should have a conversation with one of your friends, and you could bring this up, and so it's, maybe it's worth mentioning, but something I've thought about many, many times, but it, just because it happened the other day, all of a sudden it's in my memory. So I'm walking around the store, um, and I uh, hear this uh, child obviously asking its mother for something. I don't know. It was a toy, apparently, or something to that effect. And so the mother says to the child, hey, uh, you should ask Santa. Ask Santa Claus. And it reminded me of something that I've said many, many times before, um, and it just popped in my mind all of a sudden, but... Um, pardon me, I feel like I've got something in my eye, Sleeka. Uh, anyway, um, it says, when we do that, we are essentially teaching our children to pray. That mother is teaching her child to pray to Santa Claus. So whenever we hear people say, well, you know, you should ask Santa, write Santa a letter, whatever. We can write Santa Claus, but we can't journal. You know, this is the thing. We're teaching our children to pray. This is one of the evils of this type of thing, this type of holiday, people say, "Well, there's nothing wrong about it. It's, it's uh, we've taken the meaning now. It's blah 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 blah, whatever the holiday is." In this case, we're teaching our children to pray. Just uh, that was, that was free. Just an aside. All right. So it says here. Um, so what happened was she also prophesied that her parents would bear a child who would be the Israelites' redeemer. This is another thing. We have all these ideas. I don't want to have a child now. I don't have this. I don't have that. There's a lack of faith. There's a lack of amuna. We, Besides that, we have no idea who the child is going to be that we're going to uh, be birthing. Number one. Number two, um, and I know that Ahmet brought this down, I think, uh, recently. He mentioned it. Maybe it was um, in an online statement. But anyway, I've, we talked about it before, that actually having children hastens the redemption why? Because there are a certain number of souls. There's only a certain number of souls. Hashem has created a certain number of souls. Our souls are eternal. That's why it's not a question of if you will live forever. The question is where you will live forever. It's not a, you're going to live forever. The question is, are you going to live in Gehenna or are you going to live in, in Ganadin? One of the two, there's only, there's only two places. Just like there's only two types of people in the world. There's only the people that are in the covenant and those who are not in the covenant. If you're in the covenant, you're called a Jew. If you're not in the covenant, you're a Gentile. That's the only two types of people that exist. You're in the covenant, you're a Jew. Out of the covenant, a Gentile. There's no uh, in-between. And so, what I just said to you is an absolute Jewish belief too. So anyway, it says, she also prophesied that her parents would bear a child who would be an Israelite's redeemer. This argument and prophecy convinced Amram 
that he should remarry Yaakovit. So they had a, a second wedding. Second wedding. So we continue the story now. Uh, we left off at verse uh, 20, I think. So it's 21. And it was because of this, the midwives feared God that he made them houses. Verse 22, Pharaoh commanded his entire people saying, every son that will be born into the river shall you throw him and every daughter shall you keep alive. So it says, a man went from the house of Levi and he took a daughter of Levi and the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. We're now on chapter two, capiculo dos. It says here, she saw that he was good And she hid him for three months. And when she could not hide him any longer, so she took him into a wicker basket and smeared it with clay and pitch. And she placed the boy uh, into it and placed it among the reeds at the bank of the river. Now, the sages point out, what does it mean here when it says she saw that he was good? Every mother loves their baby no matter what. The baby could be ugly, the baby could be beautiful, it could be cute, it could be fat, it could be skinny, whatever. No matter what, the babe, the mother is going to look at the, the baby and love it. And so when it says she looked at it and saw that he was good, that every mother could say that. So there has to be something more to the story rather than just that. There was something about the child that the mother saw, that Yehoved saw, and said, hey, this is a, this is a special boy. And so it uh, reminds me of a, of a joke I heard one time. It's kind of cute. It says that there's a, a Jewish couple. They had just given um, Mr. and Mrs. Levy, had just given uh, birth to the, a brand-new baby boy. So they brought him in front of the congregation, and the rabbi said, I would uh, like to make a, an announcement we had a baby boy born to our, uh, our precious couple here. And so Mr. and Mrs. Levy would like to introduce to the congregation their newborn baby boy, Dr. Levy, because they expect him to be a doctor, Baruch So it says here um, in the Kehal Tumash, the Torah now provides the details of Moshe's birth. As stated above, a certain Levite man, Amram, the grandson of Levi, went and, and remarried Yaakovid, who was Levi's daughter. Even though she was 130 years old at this time. So we have here another illustration. We have um, the Savior who is being born very miraculously. Now we have a 130-year-old woman who's about to have... A baby. So it says, she miraculously regained her youthfulness when Amram remarried her. So we have here something else. It's not, you know, um, Moshe was not born of a virgin. We talked about that yesterday. Had he been born of a virgin, he would have been the Redeemer. But he was born not of a virgin, meaning he's in the prison cell with us. He's on the Titanic with us. He's he's in the underground dungeon with us. He's born under the same circumstances we are. So no matter if he had been 100% perfect, he would still been under the sin of Adam. So, but what happened was there was still something supernatural related to his birth. And so this points to the fact that the Mashiach is going to have a supernatural birth. Maybe not identically supernatural, but still supernatural. And in this case, his mother was made supernaturally youthful so that she could have a baby. So it says here... <coughs> 
The rest of the Jews again followed Amram's example and remarried their wives. And Miriam's argument thus led to the birth of the generation of Jews who left Egypt. So Amram and Yaakov's Amunah inspired others to take up the same Amunah, which means that our Amunah can inspire others to take up the same Amunah. So your Amunah that you display on a daily basis inspires others to take up that same Amunah. If we never have anybody eating kosher, no one else will ever eat kosher. If you never have anybody walk, any men walking around who believe in Yeshua and wear a kippah and tzitzit, kosher kippah, kosher tzitzit, no one else will ever do that. If you don't ever have uh, believers in Yeshua who are uh, keeping family purity and being a mik, uh, you know, immersed in a mikvah, then no one else will ever do that. I could go on and on and on and on and on. We have to inspire. Uh, you know, this is the same same uh, concept we're talking about. If you never have people keeping the festivals who believe in Yeshua, no one ever keep the festivals. It's just that simple. We see examples of that. I don't even have to go into it. So it says in verse 2, the woman Yaakov had conceived as soon as she married Amram, <coughs> remarried him, I should say. And it says, and on the 7th of Adar, 2368, she gave birth to a son prematurely in the beginning of her seventh month. So God wanted him to be born in the seventh month. The Jews knew that God had promised to redeem them, and it was reasonable to assume that their, their Redeemer would be, would be born into a family of stature such as Amram. So it's interesting that the first Redeemer was born to the, uh, a family of, of Levites, so priesthood, and that the final Redeemer would be born to a family of uh, royalty so that the priesthood and the royalty should be together in the redemption process. So it says that therefore, now so this is the good, we're about to see the good that, uh, that she noticed with her son. Therefore, seeing that the room miraculously became filled with light when he was born, Yaakov understood how good he was. So the goodness that she saw was not just that, oh, look, he's uh, my precious boy, but rather the, the room became filled with light. Now, why did the sages say that it became filled with light? Because they link it back to the verse in Bracious that says, God saw the light that it was good. And so, of course, the light being talked about there is the light of Torah. So here we have Moshe, who Moshe is... The picture of Torah, he is the uh, quintessential example of what it means to be Torah, which is another picture because Yeshua is the Torah made flesh. He is, Yeshua is the light of the world, whereas Moshe was a reflection of that light. And so therefore, light filled the room. And then what do we have at Yeshua's birth? We have the story of, 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 the, of, a, of a divine light that shone over the place of his birth. There is obviously a connection. And it's not, uh, it's, it's meaningful, deeply meaningful. So continuing on the story as we're con coming to the, the conclusion of our, of our Aliyah today. So it said, um, she placed him in a basket. Now, what's interesting about the basket is the basket is a type of ark. I'm, I, I mean this both like the Ark of the Covenant, but really in this case, it's more like the ark that Noah made. Why? Well, because 
She covered the outside of it with pitch, just like the ark of, the, of Noah was covered on the outside with pitch. What is the word for pitch? The word for pitch that was used with respect to the, uh, the ark of Noah was that the, uh, the pitch was uh, the same word that was used for um, atonement, kippur is the same word that was used when it was covering the ark. So there's, a, there's an allusion here to a type of ark. So it says here, His sister stationed herself at a distance to know what would be done with him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe by the river, and her maidservants walked along the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maidservant, and she took it. She opened it and saw, and the boy, and behold, a, a youth was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Her, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and summon for you a wet nurse from the Hebrew women who will nurse the boy for you? What was the problem? Um, first of all, Miriam is very brave. We already said she's a prophetess, but now she's exhi exhibiting her great bravery. And she would run up and even dare speak to the daughter of Pharaoh. There's a reason why she did that. We're going to learn here in just a second. But... Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that Moshe, the problem was, is that if we read some of the uh, commentary, Moshe, the little baby Moshe, he would uh, not breastfeed at any of the breast of the uh, Egyptian maidservants. He did not want non-certified kosher milk. So therefore, she was getting concerned. We bring this down from the, the different sources that she was getting concerned because the little baby would not drink uh, non-kosher uh, milk. He only would drink milk from the breast of a Jew. And so Miriam shows up and says, hey, I happen to know somebody who might be good at this uh, job. And it just so happens to be his mother, Yakovid. So Yakovid ends up getting to nurse her own baby boy because she had the Amuna to, uh, to, to have him to begin with, and then to uh, place him into the water. So it says, the daughter of Pharaoh said, go. The girl went and summoned the boy's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this boy and nurse him for me, and I will give you your pay. So not only that, but Yehovah got to take him home. And so it was a great miracle. So the women took the boy and nursed him. The boy grew up and, brought, and she brought him to the daughter of Pharaoh. Ramban brings down, she brought him back when he was about 12. And she was a son to her. And she called his name Moshe because he said, for I drew him out of the water. Now, going, um, by the way, about the light. I, I left out something I wanted to mention here about the light that filled the room. It says, the house became filled with light when he was born, indicating his unique ability, his unique ability to disseminate holiness to those around him. Isn't that what Yeshua did? He disseminated holiness. Now, I want to read this next part to you because this is critical about this particular story. This is critical about this story because we have to understand why was Batya, why was the daughter of Pharaoh, that is, given the great mitzvah of rescuing Moshe and raising Moshe? What was, uh, what was it about her that Hashem should bless her so much? And there's a lot that's written in the Talmud about this particular individual. And it tells us why Miriam felt brave enough to walk up to her. And, I mean, th think about it. this is the This is the, 
She's the daughter of Pharaoh. I mean, you can't get much higher than that. And so yet Miriam just walked right up to her and said, hey, I happen to know somebody. I heard, I read in the green pages that you were taking out an ad for a nursemaid, and here I have somebody. So it says in the Kehol Tumash, to verse 5, Just then, Pharaoh's daughter Bitya, or Batya, who had decided to renounce idolatry, went down to bathe in the Nile. That is, to ritually immerse herself in the Nile. She went down. The, the thing is, is that it talks about in Tractate Sota, 12b, is that Batya, which means daughter of God, had decided that all of this idolatry she was living in in her father's house was a bunch of nonsense. And so she decided to go down to the Nile and take a mikvah and renounce idolatry and become a Jewess. And so it says here, in order to, she did this in order to spiritually cleanse herself of idolatry, including Nile worship. So immersing in the Nile was part of her way to refute that the Nile was a god, that she said, was saying, there's only one god. Batya saw the basket and told her attendant ma maidens that she was going to see what it was. But her maidens opposed her. So it says here in the commentary that God, uh, God caused her maidens to be, to, to be killed because they opposed her. But uh, what I wanted to bring out here was the fact that she was going down to the Nile to uh, become a Jewess. And it says in Megillah 13a that any non-Jew who renounces idolatry becomes a Jew. And what is even more remarkable is that <clears throat> the reward for Batya becoming a Jewish and renouncing idolatry was that Hashem, the minute she came up out of the water, that she should see the ark of God, so to speak, floating by with the Redeemer, the Savior, the representation of the Holy Torah. And she was given the great privilege of raising the man that would represent the Torah of God, who would be the first Redeemer, all because she was a Gentile who took a step of faith and decided to become a Jewess. It's a remarkable, beautiful, wonderful story. And so therefore, she's forever known as Batya, the daughter of God. End of our Aliyah today. I pray that you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing day. Look forward to seeing everybody else tomorrow with God's help for the third Aliyah today. Be a like to somebody. Be kind to somebody. Show somebody your love today. Give them a good smile and uh, enjoy your day. We look forward to seeing everybody tomorrow. Bezrat Tashem. Shalom, shalom.